0: Just want to give a bit of a recap, because it is a couple of weeks since we did it, because we had a guest speaker last week. So we started off in Daniel chapter one, looking at what it is to live in Babylon, and we saw how Daniel and his friends were taken, and they were assimilated into Babylonian culture. They were told to learn Babylonian literature, to learn the language, to even change their names. Their names that honoured the God of Israel were changed to be names that honour the gods of Babylon. Babylon. They were, their identity was systematically stripped back. And they reached a point where Daniel and his friends um, decided, no, actually, you can do that, you can change the name, you can make me learn this stuff, but I will not eat the king's food. And they devoted themselves to God in that. And they had favour, one, to be allowed to not eat the king's food because the fear was that they would start to look a bit pasty and thin and uh, the people who were in charge of them would get in trouble. And in Babylon, getting in trouble basically means, (laughs) you're gone. But God gave them favour and they were allowed to eat just vegetables and water. And God caused them to thrive, actually, so that they were better than any of the others who were eating the full diet of rich food, meat, wine, all of that good stuff according to that Babylonian side. Sorry for any vegetarians around. But God gave them favour so that they excelled. And then Martin Flood from Basingstoke came and talked about uh, the first half of Daniel chapter two. And we're going to pick up the second half today. But he talked about the first half and he called it distinct servants faithfully present. And we looked at how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream that really disturbed him. He couldn't understand what it meant And he actually threw the gauntlet down to his magicians and his advisors. Uh, Actually, in quite an unfair way, he said, you tell me the dream and the interpretation or all of you, the whole lot of you are gone. And none of them could do it until Daniel, uh, when they come and actually finish finish Daniel off, Daniel says, hang on, hang on, hang on. What's going on? Play for time a little bit and said, no, let me... See what I can do. And he gets his friends together and they pray and say, Lord, would you show us what the dream is and its interpretation? And they did. And what Martin drew out of that is, you know, faced with the option of either assimilation, where you become full Babylonian and you forget that you were once part of the people of God in Israel, or seclusion and holding yourself apart, they chose a third way, which is to be faithfully present in Babylon. In Babylon, but not of Babylon, if I can coin a phrase from Jesus. And so that was where we got to last time. Now this week, we are going to be looking at Daniel chapter 2, verses 25 to 49, which Bronwyn has graciously said at the last minute, she's happy to read. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll come near you so that goes on the recording.
1: Ariok took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man amongst the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, <laughs> <laughs> that one, um, you are able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it. Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner, Divin- diviner, 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 um, can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar that will, what will happen in the, com- the days to come. Your king and the visions that passed through your mind as you lay in your bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I, am greater, I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand uh, what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in, a, in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on uh, on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all were broken to pieces and became like chaff on, the, on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock was struck. The statue, has, um, the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. um, You are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you domain and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. Or you are the head of gold. After you, another king will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third king, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so will the crush and break of and so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw at the feet and toes were par- partly of clay, baked clay, and partly of iron, so this will be divided, be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw make iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. <coughs> and just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a, mi- a mixture and will not remain united. Uh, any more that any more that iron mixes with clay in the time of those kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another uh, to another people it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end it will it uh, but it will itself endure forever this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel, and paid him honour, and ordered that, all of, uh, an, that, that, that an offering... And increase um, incense be incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, sure you, "Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery." Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king approached Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, administrators over the province of Babylon, while David himself remained at the royal court.
0: Thank you Bronwyn. So what do we see? in this part of the bible i want to see first of all god is at work in babylon you might be forgiven for thinking that he couldn't be and as a faithful israelite daniel and his friends would have thought "Ah, oh, no yahweh our god the god of gods the most high god has nothing to do with this Yes, he's, he's predicted that we're going to be sent into exile into this place. But really, we're just counting time until we can go back to the promised land and we can get back to what God is doing. But God's having none of it because God is at work in Babylon. I have to say, as someone who doesn't really get dreams from God, I don't. It's just not how God is, works in me. I'm a little bit jealous that God chose a pagan king who was a little bit corrupt and a little bit full of himself, as we'll see in chapter four, that God's chose to speak to him in this way. But do you know what? God is God. He gets to work how God wants to work. Amen? Amen? We get to talk to him about our preferences and bless us, sometimes he listens. But God is God. See, God reveals something of his plan to King Nebuchadnezzar, but it confuses and terrifies him. We've already seen last time that we're looking at Daniel, how Daniel chose to be faithfully present. He devoted himself to prayer and asked God to speak, to give him both the dream and the interpretation. But when he then has that, he doesn't claim knowledge on his own behalf. Do you notice it? Verses 27 to 28, he is very clear that it is God who has revealed it to him. And furthermore, in verse 30, he's no one special. God hasn't shown him because he's holy or he's powerful or he's got deep insight that no one else has got. No, God has shown him because God is gracious, because he loves to reveal the mysteries that he shares. Before we move on to what the dream actually means, I just want to stop a moment and say, do you know what? God is at work in the version of Babylon that we find ourselves in too. Do you believe it? God is at work in England, in the United Kingdom, in the West, across this whole world that you could still say is kind of enmity with him. God is at work. He is at work in the lives of your friends, your neighbours, your colleagues, your family. He is reaching out to them. He is. It might not be with dreams, although it could be. We are hearing reports in the Islamic world of Jesus introducing himself to Muslim people and saying, this is who I am, and it is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God in human flesh. Will you follow me? God is doing it through dreams. And it might be that your friends have a dream that they just talk to you about, and you get maybe an inkling that maybe God was in that. And you can say, well, do you know what? I do kind of believe that God speaks in dreams. Yeah, sorry. I believe God speaks in dreams. And, you know, I've asked him about it. And maybe your dream's a bit like this. Maybe it's speaking to that. But it might not be in dreams. It might be just through the circumstances of their life. It might be that he is stirring up questions and a spiritual hunger. And just as the king's advisors last time were unable to help him, you know, they did all their tricks. They used all the best knowledge that Babylon had to offer and they drew a blank. Just as they couldn't help, do you know where God is at work? We have answers that will satisfy. Can I get an itty-bitty amen? God is at work in you and me to meet our friends and our family and our neighbours and our colleagues and the random people that we meet as we do daily life. He's giving us the answers that they need. Because you see, living faithfully in Babylon is not just about devotion and purity. It's about mission and outreach. Amen. Amen? And as Jesus' people, as the body of Christ on earth, we have answers that the world needs. Pray, and this is the first thing that I want you to take home from today, pray that God will give you discernment and wisdom to see where he is at work. That's the first part. And then pray that you have courage and boldness to join him and take a step of faith to work where he is working. Okay, back to the story. So, the dream is revealed. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream perfectly. Nebuchadnezzar is not easily impressed and if there was one little detail that was wrong, you can bet he would have picked up on it. But no, Daniel tells him the dream. A huge, I don't know what word your translation has, but different translations I looked at says, a huge or an enormous or a great or a colossal statue appeared and it was made up of four key parts, each one made of a different material. Can we pop the next slide up, please? Thanks, Anna. Each one made up of a different material. The head was made of gold, the chest was made of silver, the stomach and the thighs were made of bronze, and then the legs and the feet were made of iron and fired clay. But what happened is a stone, not made by human hand, the Book of Daniel tells us, strikes the feet of the statue and it demolishes. Something made of gold, silver, bronze, lion, fired clay, just shatters. Actually, the way it talks about it, it's almost like it gets disintegrated into dust and blown away like chaff on the wind. And that stone that strikes the statue grows into a mountain that stands forever and grows to fill the whole earth. And Daniel shares the interpretation. He talks about how the four parts of the statue are actually four different kingdoms. Now, there is some debate about what the four kingdoms are, but the people that have come along in recent years and said that it's actually a different group of kingdoms than the one I'm about to say now basically do it because they don't believe God can predict the future so I'm going to ignore those people because God can predict the future and I believe that God was speaking about four nations four kingdoms that were to come and on the next slide I've put down what the the commentators that I think have it right so the head is Babylon Daniel says oh king of kings God has given you this nation he's given you glory and honour and you are like the head made of gold but after you will come another kingdom that is not as great as you that is not as great as the kingdom that God has given to you and that will be um, if you look at, into the history of it I believe that's the Medes and the Persians that come after Nebuchadnezzar that come after Daniel chapter 5 um, and then into Daniel chapter 6 the king that throws Daniel into the lion's den is a king of the Medes and the Persians and then coming after in around about 334 BC, you've got the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, conquering the known world at that time and imposing Greek culture and thought wherever it went, to the point that when the New Testament is written, the reason the New Testament is written in Greek is because it's just become the common language. It's the language that everyone knew how to speak, even if their own native language was something different. So the third kingdom is Greece. But then coming after Greece, you've got Rome, which kind of took over Greece in 146 BC. So these are the four kingdoms that Daniel is talking about. But I don't want to spend lots of time on that. Some commentaries go into great detail about how we know which kingdom is which. I don't care about that. What I care about is the stone. Yeah. Because the stone that strikes the statue, even that one is debated a little bit. Some people say it's the kingdom that's going to come. Some people say it's Israel going to come back onto the scene, whatever. I can't help but see it as Jesus and the kingdom that he brought. Amen. Amen. He was the stone that was made without hands. Literally. You know, every single one of us was made with the involvement of two human beings not Jesus. Jesus is one human being and God miraculously fashioning a baby boy inside of Mary's womb into the virgin birth that we were celebrating just a couple of months ago. And then as this boy grew into a man and grew with favour with God and man, in his ministry, he established the kingdom of God. He came teaching and proclaiming, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is close enough to touch it. As we looked at at the start of this year, through his miracles, he showed that the kingdom of God was close enough to touch. For the care that he showed people, both Jew and Gentile, Jesus showed dignity, honour, compassion and love to all, apart from the people that thought they didn't need it people that thought they didn't need it, that thought they had it together, that thought that they were good enough on their own, Jesus showed them the bankruptcy of their spirituality, of their religion and says, no, you're lacking and I've got what you lack. Not that they liked it because of course it led to his death on the cross. But even his death, we might think the death was the statue striking the stone. But in the upside down kingdom of God, the Son of God, willingly taking on death, that is when the stone struck and smashed the empires. As he took his sin upon us, as he took on the ruler of this world, as he took on death itself, which only came about because of our sin in the first place, it was never God's intention or plan for us to know death. That is where the stone strikes the statue, and the kingdom of God is established. And then he was raised to life, and then he founded the church, and he set the church on mission, not on their own, but with the fire of the Holy Spirit. See, the four kingdoms represented by the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream have been blown away by the winds of history. The land of Babylon is still there, but it's what we call Iraq now. And there's no continuity with the Babylonian empire the Medes and the Persians. We have people who still call themselves Persian, but there is no world-class empire there anymore. Greece is not the world-class empire it once was. Even mighty Rome was laid to waste. But throughout history, his kingdom has continued to grow and fill the earth. Amen. In the early centuries of the church, the Christian faith spread amongst all the nations. And it really did. It was in Israel and the Middle East to start with, yes. But then it moved across to Eastern Europe with Greece, Turkey and Rome, followed by Western Europe in sort of the fourth to the eighth centuries. You know, the part of Europe that we are in right now took longer to put their faith in Jesus en masse than the Eastern Europeans did. But there was also Africa you know, many notable early church fathers were African. Augustine was from Hippo. He was in Africa. Tertullian, who was an apologist, he was African. Athanasius. If it was not for Athanasius, we would not have the doctrine of the Trinity that we have right now. It was Athanasius who put up with being put away from the church that was going in a different direction and getting the Bible wrong. But as athanasius said no if jesus is not the eternal second person of the trinity then we can't be saved he was an african bishop the church took root in africa the church took root in asia and india the apostle thomas people believe took the gospel to india And so there has been a church in India in certain restricted areas, sure, not in the whole uh, nation, but there has been an Indian church since the time of the Apostle Thomas. So in the early centuries, the faith spread across all nations that we knew about. In the Middle Ages, sure, with the rise of Islam in Asia, the church became more European and and American. I would argue that the church became more compromised too, to be honest with you. It's a slightly different message, but just think about how it took Constantine coming to faith as the emperor of Rome. And then as the faith went across to the different nations to the west of Europe, there was always that mixture of politics and faith that ended up, what did Jesus say? You can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other, and one will dominate the other. Well, guess what? Politics has dominated faith wherever you try and mix the two. Doesn't work. But throughout the centuries, you've had crusades and inquisitions, heresy trials and executions. You've had a colonial mission where the gospel has gone out, yes, but also Western culture has gone out. And the church has not been allowed to be what Jesus wanted it to be, which is that indigenous expression of the faith expressed in the, the terms of the nation that it was being planted into, although thank God for Hudson Taylor. When Hudson Taylor went to China, he did not go as an Englishman. He went and he adopted Chinese dress, Chinese speech, Chinese diet, and he embodied the gospel in a Chinese culture. And actually, I think it's because of that, That you've now had the underground church that has flourished through communist china because the church was allowed to be yes christian but also chinese reformations and revivals have helped bring us back on track although even there they haven't been without issues and in the last century what we find is that the profile of the typical christian has shifted again at the turn of the 1900s if you were asked to picture your typical christian you would probably think of a white middle-class European male. Through mission and outreach, largely Pentecostal and charismatic. Um, Philip Jenkins, who's a historian, says this. These days, if we want to visualise a typical contemporary Christian, we should think of a woman living in a village in Nigeria or in a Brazilian favela. Yeah? The church is no longer majority Western. Through mission and through the grace of God, actually, more people live south of the equator with faith in Jesus than north of the equator. And more people live to the east of Europe than in Europe, who name the name of Jesus. See, geographically, the net growth in Christian populations has actually been most prevalent in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. In areas like the Asia-Pacific and the sub-Saharan Africa, Christian populations have increased more than tenfold. Hallelujah. In Vietnam alone, Protestantism has grown by 600% in the past 10 years. South Korea has seen a dramatic increase in Christians between 1945 and 2010. In 1945, 2% of South Koreans were Protestant Christians. In 2010, 29.3% of the population. God is still at work across this world, redeeming men and women for God out of every nation. And as the church worldwide continues his mission, as apostolic and evangelistic ministries go to places where Christ is not named king and preach the gospel, his kingdom continues to come. His kingdom continues to grow. But even in England, yeah, in England, it feels like we're losing ground. I'm going to name it it feels like we're losing this culture. But even in this country, God is at work. We're actually seeing a reverse missionary movement. Did you know that? In the 1700s and the 1800s, we sent missionaries out to the world and now the children and grandchildren of those missionaries are coming, the people in those nations who were reached by those missionaries are coming back here to bring the faith to us. Come on. I love the wisdom of God. I love it. Actually, I believe that there is an openness to God. It's just that the church is so often hidden away or seen as an irrelevance. Now, also, though, I do believe that it might be that there is a persecution coming. We'll see next week that although Daniel at the end of this chapter is sitting pretty and given authority, that it didn't stay that way. There was persecution coming. And it might be that there's persecution coming here. But there is actually persecution where the church is most growing. Do you know that? The church is growing in Asia and in Africa and in India and in Latin America. But where the church is growing, there is persecution. And if the cost of having a healthy, beautiful, glorious church is persecution, Lord, prepare our hearts. But while we have this freedom that we have, our task is to show people that Jesus is still alive, still saving, still healing, still calling people to join his kingdom. Because one day he is going to return. Amen. One day he will return and his kingdom will be complete. He will take up his throne on earth. Our hope is not just pray a prayer, live as good as you can and then you'll go to heaven when you die. That isn't our gospel. Amen. Our gospel is King Jesus came 2000 years ago. He established his kingdom and he's gone away and his kingdom is still growing, but one day he will come again and his kingdom will be set up on this earth. This earth. Hallelujah. Heaven is a waiting room for those who die between the first and the second coming. It is not our ultimate destination. This earth. Book of Revelation shows how there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And God is going to move here. It says in Revelation 21, the king, the dwelling place of God is now with men. That is the end game. That is what he's doing. You see, Jesus is going to be king of the whole world, but not as Nebuchadnezzar was. Nebuchadnezzar was king of the known part of the world. And when he took subjects, he assimilated them. He erased their identity. He took away everything that made Daniel and his friends Judean and made them as Babylonian as he could. Jesus doesn't do that. This is not like the Borg, if anyone knows Star Trek. Yeah? You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. (laughs) This is not what Jesus is about. Uh, The Borg have another phrase. What is it? Your uniqueness will be added to our perfection. Perfection. No, that isn't what Jesus is about. Jesus gives us new life and a new identity without invalidating who he has made us to be in all of our aspects. Personality, you might be more quiet, you might be more loud, you might be more outgoing, you might be a bit more thoughtful. That is how God has made you. And he doesn't obliterate that. Hobbies and interests, you might not like the same music that I like. Probably shouldn't like the same music that I like, to be fair. <laughs> I might not like the same music that you like. You might not like the same films as each other. Yeah, well, there's a enthusiastic yes from my wife there. <laughs> I spend quite a lot of my time uh, after Lailene has gone to sleep just watching films that I know I'll enjoy that we couldn't watch together. Too much sci-fi, too many guns and laser blasts and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Uh, Jesus doesn't change that about me. Gender and sexuality. Sometimes the message that people who do not conform to traditional, I would say biblical sexuality, all too often hear the message, come to Jesus and you'll be just like us. As if someone who feels that they're gay has to get married to prove that they're normal. Do you know what? Part of Jesus's salvation plan for someone who is gay might be faithful celibacy rather than conversion or rather than entering into a conventional man, male, female marriage. And that is how Jesus wants it for sometimes. Jesus talks about those who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, those who will never have be married or have kids, but devote themselves totally to the Lord Jesus. It might be about culture. It might be about class. It might be about race, education, careers and occupations. Jesus takes all of this and he weaves it into a beautiful tapestry that brings him glory. We don't get assimilated. We get included. That is what Jesus does. He remains Lord. So there may be times where he points something out that needs to change. And if he does that, change we must. Because what he's doing is he's taking us on a journey of becoming who he made us to be. And the reality is there are things about every culture, things about every personality type, things about every hobby and interest, gender, culture, class, whatever you want to talk about. There are good things about it that bring glory to Jesus. And there are things that if taken to the extreme, detract from that. One of the things that we Brits do good is pomp and majesty and ceremony. We'll see it again in the coronation, but I was reminded of that in um, the Queen's funeral. We do that sort of solemnity and soberness really, really well. What we don't do so well is community living. Every man's house is their castle. And when I get home from work at night, I draw up my drawbridge and nobody's coming in. That is not of the kingdom. And those of us that come to faith in Jesus have to learn to open ourselves up more. Those of us who come to faith in Jesus from a British context. There are some wonderful things about Brazilian culture. I love how passionate Brazilians are. I love the sense of life that I have. I love the way that they open their doors. Now I am not because I like my marriage too much. <laughs> going to point out areas that I think Brazilian culture needs to change. Actually, I can't think of any right now. I want to critique my own culture. (laughs) I critique my own culture because actually those are the areas Jesus is calling me to repent from. I can appreciate parts of my culture and parts of where I'm coming from, but I want to appreciate parts of other cultures that bring glory to Jesus and the way that Brazilians pray and worship brings glory to Jesus the way that they open their doors and people who I know have next to nothing will give me their last cup of coffee in their thermos flask for the day just because I'm a visitor. That brings glory to Jesus. I'm sure there are parts of Brazilian culture that isn't quite right. If nothing else, Carnival. Carnival where there is just this almost an orgy of parties and drunkenness and worldliness. That is not good. And anyone who comes to faith in Christ who has done that before in Brazil will not be able to do it again. But there is good stuff about every culture, every nationality, because he is after diversity in his people, not uniformity. If nothing else, the whole apostles prophets evangelists pastors teachers shows that even in leadership in church there isn't a cookie cutter approach there are different types of leaders there are even within the type of ministry gift that we're talking about no one apostle is the same as another no one prophet is the same as another no we are after diversity he wants diversity in his people you can look at how the church handled the influx of gentiles in the first century they had a choice They have to become Jewish first. That's what the Jewish people would have wanted. But actually the church talked about it, prayed about it, and then they said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to not take the law and lay it on the shoulders of the Gentiles. No, they can be Gentile and followers of Jesus. Because it takes all of us, with all of our beautiful differences, to put his glory on display. Amen. Amen? We each put a different facet of his majesty on display. And the book of Revelation that I started with this morning shows us the end game that Nebuchadnezzar was hinting at. Revelation 11 verse 15 says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 5, 9 to 10, You are worthy, talking about the Lamb of God, who is also the Lion of Judah, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. After this, I looked, Revelation 7, 9 to 10, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. You see, Jesus is returning to a people, to a kingdom, to a temple, to a family, to a body, to a bride made up of people from all over the earth. Every nation, tribe, people and language. And his kingdom will outlast all other kingdoms. No statue will stand. But it will incorporate the best of every nation that has and will exist. See, the stone that struck the colossal statue and laid it to waste will have become a mountain filling the earth. Now, let's bring it home a little bit. For Trinity Life Church, this is here and now. We have people of different nations worshipping the Lord in unity and fellowship. It's always been that way. I can remember the first time we gathered people that aren't just me and La Luna for Trinity Life Church. We had a Nigerian couple who were part of us at that time. And as I looked around, I just realised, I'm the only white Brit in this church plant. Long may it continue. Because white Brits can't put on the full display of the majesty of Jesus. It can't any more than a Brazilian church in this culture could put on the full display of the glory of Jesus. It takes all of us together, different nations, worshipping the Lord in unity and fellowship, because actually we live in a town that has people of many nations and the Lord wants to reach them all. Amen. Amen. Let's just bring it into land. After Daniel has shared this amazing dream and the interpretation that predicts a future kingdom of God that is going to fill the earth and bring all within the the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar. See, these names are tricky, right? Nebuchadnezzar is amazed that Daniel was able to reveal both the dream and the interpretation. And he praises the God of Israel as God of gods and Lord of kings. Now, don't think that Nebuchadnezzar is therefore converted here. Nebuchadnezzar believes in lots of gods. So if all he's doing is bringing one more god into his um, pantheon, into his temple, it's not a problem for him. Chapter four, we'll see a development in Nebuchadnezzar's faith. But for now, he is giving honour and glory both to Daniel and to Daniel's god. And we see that Daniel is put into a position of authority and he's able to call his friends into it. I've already hinted that next week we'll see that this is not necessarily just a happily ever after story. But for now, God has done an amazing thing in the people of Babylon. I want to say that as we share the story of the stone that became a mountain with our friends, I think we can expect to see the same fruit we can expect to see the same result. We can expect to see people amazed at the majesty and goodness of God. As we go out and we say, look, this is our king and he wants everyone, whoever you are, whatever you've been doing, wherever you're from, wherever you're going, he wants you. And as we can point at things that he is doing in their lives that show that he is reaching out, I believe we're going to see faith rise in people's hearts. And Babylon, the Babylon that we're in right now that we call England, will be taken for the Lord Jesus again. amen. 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 We're going to go back into some worship just to round up our time together. As we go to worship, let's just think and pray, God, is there someone that you are working in around me? Is there someone that you are moving in that you want me to join you in? Lord, would you give me the boldness? Would you give me the courage? Would you give me the faith to step into what you're doing? Lord, would you, would you give me the honour and the privilege of seeing friends of mine come to faith? Lord, would you give me the honour and the privilege of seeing your power at work? around me. In my life, amen. Yes, please. But Lord, even more in the lives of my neighbours, even more in the lives of my friends, of my colleagues, of those who do not have the hope that you have given us. And Lord, as we do that, would you raise up a people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every people on this earth, Lord God, to bring you glory, honour and praise. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you welcome everyone. Thank you that you are drawing all peoples in, not to dominate, but actually to include and to make us who you always wanted us to be for our good and for your glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Be with us now as we worship in the rest of this morning ask that you continue to speak, Lord, about steps of faith that you want us to take, Lord Jesus, that that you would continue to speak about um, situations that you are working in and that you would strengthen our hearts to join you where you are working. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Shall we stand?